Welcome to the Lost Gardens of Heligan podcast, Beauty in All Things. I'm Alistair Moore, Head of Gardens and Estate, and each month we'll be revealing the inner workings of Heligan in all its glory, from soil to seeds, bulbs to bees, past, present and future, all from right here in the Lost Gardens of Heligan on the Cornish coast. Now today we have some rather special visitors to Elegant and we couldn't let the opportunity pass for a conversation with them about the brown gold beneath our feet, the earth's skin. So today is the first of an extended two-part discussion at Elegant where we'll hear from Carl Ritz, Emeritus Professor of Soil Ecology at the University of Nottingham, Merlin Sheldrake, biologist, writer, speaker, musician, and magus of all things fungi, and Sir Tim Smith, entrepreneur, author, social campaigner, and educator who co-founded the Lost Gardens of Heligan and the Eden Project. So why soil? Soil is like air and water. There is no life without soil. We call our planet Earth. 95% of all our food relies on soil. Soil is made of minerals, air, water, organic matter. But it's not just a list of ingredients. Soil is alive. There are as many organisms in a teaspoon of soil as people on the planet. Just think of that pulsating world under your feet worms bacteria fungi insects nematodes all bursting with life in fact soil's home to 25 percent of all known species soil is the original and ultimate recycling system a system which produces nutrients and life soil is also stacked with carbon and the release of carbon into the atmosphere drives climate change so soil can help us fight climate change as it stores carbon. Soil is precious. It takes hundreds of years to make a few centimetres of topsoil. And we, our species, are allowing millions of tonnes of soil to be lost every year. So understanding how soil works is so important for us as a species and the planet as a whole. We are embarrassingly ignorant of how soil works. And today, we're going to find out a little bit more from someone who knows a great deal. So our first guest is Carl Ritz. Carl's Emeritus Professor of Soil Ecology at the University of Nottingham. He's a soil ecologist, unsurprisingly, and has vast experience in studying the wide range of interactions between soil, plants, microbes and other fauna in a variety of soil systems and types. Ask him what he does and he will say that his research interests focus on developing a mechanistic understanding of the origins and functional consequences of the compositional and spatial organisation of soil communities. So what that really means to you and me is that Carl is all about 
understanding how soil works, not as a convenient medium for holding up plants, but as a living, breathing, dynamic ecology of its own, one that is critically important to the survival of our species and the health of the planet. So let's go and say hello to Carl. Well, I am in the whitewashed splendour of the Mellon House in the suitably named Mellon Yard. And I'm here with Carl, and we've got between us a beautiful terracotta pot filled to the brim with our homemade elegant compost, which smells gorgeous, just full of earthiness, and looks like a wonderful sort of I don't know, the textures are kind of dark brown muesli full of all different shapes and sizes. And now we love to throw this liberally about uh, the garden. But Carl, if I could bring your scientific mind to bear, why are we bothering with compost? What does it do? Well, Alistair, compost is or should be, good compost should be pure plant material that's been through a composting process which has transformed it from being, say, just green plant material or fresh wood, or essentially fresh material, into a more um, stable form because it's been eaten at least once by all the microbes that were present when you carried out the composting process there. So when you stacked all that up as green material, it was full of all sorts of sugars and juices and fresh material that was full of readily available energy for lots of the microbes that were sitting around on those surfaces. As the material died and fell apart, it would then be decomposed and digested by these microbes, mainly bacteria and fungi. And as they were busy eating this stuff it would start to warm up because they're eating lots of food and they're getting warm and that heat that they generate would then accelerate the decomposition processes and that would generate more heat so the compost gets warmer and warmer and hotter and hotter and eventually can exceed 50 or 60 degrees at this stage the first microbes are unable to cope with that and they are killed off but a second range of microbes that we call thermophilic, they're capable of coping with these heats, also start to grow and carry out lots more decomposition and transformation processes. Carl, can I ask, there's something that I'm, I have a slight concern about, about our composting process, because we get a lot of material. We're not like, you know, my garden at home, I've got a tiny compost bin relatively here, they're stacked high. And we need to have a quick turnover of the compost, otherwise we'll just be overwhelmed by um, uh, organic material. So we turn the compost once a week, which means that it can achieve temperatures above 60 degrees. My concern on one side is what happens to our friendly microbes if we exceed that temperature, Um, but I understand, on the other hand, it's really good because it helps kill off uh, weed seeds and roots, etc. So temperature-wise, is there a, oh God, don't go over 70? 
Well, you can't you can't go hotter than the system will want to go, and the the generally the the considered optimum for a compost would be about 70, 75 degrees. Beyond that, there are only very few microbes that, that can cope with that. But you shouldn't worry about um, eradicating your friendly microbes because this is just part of the successional process that occurs there. You need that heat to kill the weed seeds and especially your cooch rhizomes and things like that. So you need to do this partial sterilisation um, what will happen then is that the organisms that were around when it was hot will also die off and there are plenty of organisms still pervading there and once you introduce this material to a new environment those organisms, those microbes that are able to utilise that material will kick in and start to use it. Um, so you're not eradicating anything beneficial at the end of the day um, in that sense because if you have a diverse healthy system around there will always be those organisms present that are kind of needed to step in and carry out the processes that you need in the next phase of your system brilliant so compost ready to go we chuck it on the soil what happens next when it goes well are you putting it on the soil or in the soil bit of both okay so best of all put it on the soil and let the worms pull it into the soil because then the material will be just where it's needed and the worms will do all that work for you so you haven't got to expend all that energy digging it in or anything. The compost, as we just discussed, is mainly is almost pure organic matter. So what this will be doing is it will be increasing the organic matter content of the soil. Organic matter does a number of things to soil systems. First and foremost, it aerates and improves the structure. It gives you a more friable soil and this will allow the soil to breathe more. We'll perhaps talk about that more in a minute. But secondly, um, it's also a source of energy. So compost is a slow-release form of energy. Because it's already been digested once or twice by microbes through the composting process, what's left behind is still full of energy, but it's a bit more tricky to get. So what will happen is that the biological engine of the earth, which is driving all these processes you want to be going on there to, to give you that healthy soil and give that, that production... The compost will provide a slow-release form of energy to keep that engine ticking over nicely. So this is the compost is about, it's a bit like a gently discharging battery. Now, the next part of the energy story is that you also need some more readily available energy to drive the system a little bit faster, which is when you want when the plants are starting to grow and so on and so forth. And for this, you need um, a more accessible form of energy, which is available in things like fresher roots or root exudates, for example. So what you really need there is some growing plants in the system. And so the plants will be capturing energy from the sun and turning it into sugar. They'll be transforming that sugar into all the different things that make the plant itself. And part of that sugar will also be taken down into the roots and pumped out into the soil. And these root exudates contain... Lots of energy, but it's much more available. If you like, it's a bit like sugar in your porridge. So the porridge itself is like the compost. That's a slow-release form of energy, but the sugar in there is the fast stuff. And so then what you end up with is a system that's functioning very nicely because you have some fast, um, rapidly occurring processes, especially around making nutrients available for the plants, alongside some slower processes that are chugging along more slowly. So you have a diversity of energy release and 
um, a, a range of the, of, the, of the nutrients being made available to the plants. So it's not like everything's available at once. You want this trickle to be going on. And slightly, well, staying on that topic, but focusing maybe on one organism in particular, which I'm currently very interested in, the nematode. Where does that sit within the process of, you know, if I put it very basically, from compost to plant nutrient? Where does the nematode play a role in that? Absolutely, and it plays, um, I would say, literally a central role in this. We just need to step back. Oh, sorry. What is a nematode? <laughs> a nematode is a animal. Uh, it's a tiny worm, essentially. Um, in the soil, most nematodes are one millimetre or less in size, so you can't really see them, even if you fish them out. Um, you need a microscope for that. And they're relatively simple animals in that they are only about a thousand cells. So compare that to humans, which are billions and billions of cells, as well as all your bacteria and so forth. So very simple animals, but super abundant. So every soil on the planet, and in fact every water body on the planet, is uh, carries many, many trillions of nematodes um, there. So they are ubiquitous. They're the most ubiquitous animal on the planet. Well, say that again. And so nematodes, these these little basically little wormy things, are the most ubiquitous animal on the planet. Yes, but they're generally very small, which is why they're kind of out of sight and out of mind from us clunky humans. <laughs> if you the thought experiment, um, if you were standing on the moon, as a few humans have done and you were to remove every feature of planet Earth apart from the nematodes, you would still see a glistening shell of material lit by the sun where the planet Earth is, and this would be a mantle of nematodes. Wow. That's a kind of slightly creepy but slightly beautiful idea of this sort of pulsating, translucent mass of nematodes, planet nematode. They are they are that ubiquitous, yeah. Wow. Okay, back to the back to the but, soil. So I'm you know, horticultural. I'm really interested in how do we get that compost from its beautiful brown muesli into a growing plant and where does the nematode fit in? Right. So quite a complicated story. Let's make it as simple as we can. But we just need to step back a little bit and just think about the wider context of the soil ecological system. So there's a huge variety and diversity of life in all soils, ranging from the tiniest bacteria, a thousandth of a millimetre in diameter, all the way through to the moles, etc., that we've been talking about, and all sorts of organisms of different sizes in between that. There is a more or less complex network of feeding interdependency that goes on between these organisms. So the way it works is this. The tiniest organisms, the bacteria and the fungi, degrade and digest the compost. In this case, we talk about the compost story. So they are acquiring nutrients. They're getting energy from the compost by degrading it, and they are getting nutrients, nitrogen, phosphorus, and so forth, from that because they need those to grow. So you now have nutrients that were in compost and are not available to plants, now in bacteria and fungi that are not available to plants. So 
And what happens then is that these other organisms, like the nematodes, and these are called predators, they, they come along and eat those microbes. So there are nematodes that are specialised to eat bacteria, there are nematodes that are specialised to eat fungi. They eat these microbes and digest them in their guts, and then they excrete the nutrients that they don't need because they're taking in more than they need, and that just comes out the back end of the nematode in a form that's available to plants. So if you like, they are the biological transformation agents that fertilise the system. They are the natural fertilisation system. So now the nutrients that come out the back of the nematode are available for the plant to take up and make your lettuce nice and green um, or whatever. Okay, so we've got a nitrogenous material coming out of the bottom of a, a nematode. How does that nitrogen, that if I can call it organic nitrogen, differ in the way it behaves in the soil from an artificial fertiliser nitrogen? Because there's lots of people who'll be thinking, oh, nitrogen nitrates, that's a bad thing because we all know of the runoff, etc. Is there a difference between those sources of nitrogen for a plant in terms of how they operate and stay in the soil or not? Plants are only able to take up nitrogen when it's not connected to carbon. We do need a bit of chemistry here. I love a bit of chemistry. So uh, plants are only able to utilise what we call inorganic forms of elements, inorganic nitrogen, and this is either ammonium or nitrate. So what comes out the back of a nematode is actually a combination of some organic nitrogen, but also uh, uh, ammonia. So nematodes will be excreting um, ammonia that will become immediately available um, to that. So... The, the, the transformation, we, we call this mineralisation because it's turning something that's organic, containing carbon. So in the, in the chemistry sense, organic means contains carbon. It's not like organic gardening. Mm-hmm. And to an inorganic form that's then, that's then plant available. So what's happening is that these, these mineralising organisms are actually largely putting out an, an, an inorganic form of nitrogen. And that then becomes immediately available. There's some, as always, it's more complicated than that. And there is an, another... Su- Additional story around how ammonia, which is an inorganic form of nitrogen, is then transformed to nitrate, which is another form of nitrogen that is also plant available. That is exclusively carried out by microbes, not by animals. But it's a kind of story for another day. <laughs> yeah, I think my, my brain's starting to ache slightly. Carl, thank you as ever. Brilliant okay. to have a chat with you. And um, more about soil another day, I hope. Thank you for joining us today, and a special thanks to my guest, Carl Ritz. We'll be creating two episodes each season, and our next spring episode will feature Sir Tim Smith and Merlin Sheldrake, which will be released next month. In it, we'll be exploring the networks within soil, and, of course follow the rhythms of nature across the gardens and estate at Heligan.